Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. We're going to kick off. I'm Derry Hannam. Uh, Derry and Polly are going to sort of um, try and make some sense of this this hour. Um, I'm afraid I think there's too many of us, or there will be, but if we get more arrive to have sort of introductions from every individual. But if, when we have a breakout session in 10 minutes' time, perhaps we could do that there. Um, so, Polly, a few words about you. Hi, everyone. I'm Polly. Um, I have uh, years ago went to a Danish school when I was 16, and from then have wanted to change the state education system. I was a teacher for about 20 years, working um, with children aged zero right up to about 19, mainly special educational needs, but also um, I've been an early years advisor. And I've written a book which is yet to be published called Children Love to Learn. So that's a little bit about me. And I'm also a chair of the campaign for progressive education um, and have been very much involved with Joe working with her new website, which is amazing. And I would encourage everybody to go and have a look at that too, to find out about all the other companies. Okay, thanks, Polly. And uh, I was a teacher for quite a long time, now a Jerry activist, but I was a teacher for quite a long time, and I started off with a class of uh, 34 11-plus failures, which was a really nice way to, to start. Um, haha, we're all talking about our books. I've just written a book about that. <laughs> Um, but uh, but uh, and there's a session next week. You get it half price if you come to my talk. That's the end of the commercials. And I've been head of year, head of sixth form, head of this, that, and the other. I've been head of about everything, uh, including <laughs> act, including acting head of a school in the end. Um, uh, I was always worried as um, running a school that the place never quite achieved what it set out to achieve. And if you've read the modest proposal, the the key points really are that we don't give kids enough time and space um, to become themselves, to learn the things they want to sell, to want to learn, to really develop their own skills as natural learners. We push too much at them all the time, and then we push it at them at home as well for homework. I've been working with a bunch of 10 uh, head teachers in India over the last few weeks, and we've been looking at their school mission statements, which is quite interesting. And I was thinking back to the mission statement of my own school and perhaps the one you work in. We have these mission statements, which always link to the wonderful purposes of education, like producing active citizens, helping people live worthwhile careers, developing the potential of lifelong learning and developing the potential and passions, the self-realization of every child in the school. Every child um, is equally important, the mission statements tell you. And uh, you find this now in Indian schools as well as here. They're all around the world, these mission statements. And they sound wonderful. The purposes of education sounds really good. But the only catch is they don't do it. They teach subjects in short lessons. They have tests and grades and all the rest of it. It's successful for some, yet not for many others. Now, if you look at what employers say they want, 
it's interesting that more and more employers are actually saying things that are very similar to the school mission statements. They're looking for the same kind of purposes. They want innovative, responsible, collaborative, communicative people, the kind of qualities that don't emerge from the kind of school curriculum that most of us actually have, as opposed to our mission statements. These qualities develop, you could argue, through opportunities for kids to explore their own interests. So we have schools saying that they aim to develop these purposes. We have employers and self-employed saying these are the qualities they want, but there's this enormous disconnect between what schools actually do and what employers say they want and what schools say they do. And the more we know about learning, of course, the more rational it becomes to link, to link what goes on in schools to the purposes of the students. Um, Self-directed learning seems to be the natural way that young human beings function in the world. And it's also what employers are now saying they want and schools are saying they do in mission statements. So we've got nice a nice alignment between our understanding of the brain and learning, what employers want, what the self-employed need, and what schools say they do in their mission statements. We've got a nice alignment. And in the, as you, if you've read the, the proposal carefully, I give some examples there of companies that are actually setting aside a paid work time aside for employees to pursue their own purposes, hoping that it may or may not benefit the company in the end. But having active, enthusiastic learners with alive minds is certainly to the benefit of the company. Google work in this way. If you work for Google, you get 20% of your employed time to follow your own purposes. And uh, I forget her name, Sarah Wojcicki, the person who actually created Gmail, did it for fun in her paid spare time as it were. And all the time I'm finding more examples of, um, of people who are doing this. I met a guy from Israel the other day, uh, whizzing around the world online when we were talking to these Indian head teachers. He runs a thing called Sparks. He's got 8,000 people in Israel who are interested in something passionately and it's created an enormous database which he makes available to kids in schools when the school is giving kids time to follow their own interests they can dig into this database called sparks absolutely fascinating another one i've discovered is called outschool in california do you know it um it, it provides courses at the request of kids they had 100,000 kids plugged into their system in January, and since COVID, it's now 300,000, and they've got something like 5,000 kid-generated courses available. Now, for Sparks, the Israeli one, it's not for profit, and for our school, you have to pay. But it's interesting to me that the kind of structure that we would need to provide opportunities for kids to follow their own interests it's beginning to emerge in the world which is quite exciting anyway what we wanted to do in the first breakout was to consider whether the whole proposition is practical does it seem a sensible thing to suggest and to move forward thinking about this idea of a 20 percent project um, 
Yaakov Hecht, I don't know if you come across him, a mate of mine from Israel. We were at the Education for Democracy conference in Strasbourg, Council of Europe in 2016. And he in his keynote and me in my workshop, we said to people, look, how would it be? The state presently has 100% of the school curriculum. Why don't we let the kids have 20% of it? The state will still have 80% to do all the stuff that it thinks is so important. What would we lose? Uh, perhaps if the 20% worked well, the kids would become so enthusiastic about school, they'd learn more of the state curriculum in the 80%. It would make the 80% more efficient. Uh, I did some research once when Blunkett was uh, Minister of Education, which appeared to show that, that when schools really take the interests of the kids at heart and involve them in decision-making and make spaces for them to do things that they want to do, they actually become more enthusiastic learners for all the other stuff. But I'm not saying that I think GCSE is particularly worthwhile. I don't. I think we can scrap it tomorrow and save a lot of money. But anyway, we put it to the, I think there were nearly 2,000 delegates at this conference. What do you think of the idea? And uh, much to the anxiety of the organiser, Yakov asked them to put their hands up if they thought it was a good idea. Most people put their hands up, but some didn't. And I noticed the delegation from Morocco, interestingly, sat there, didn't put their hands up. And I was able to catch them afterwards and said, look, why didn't you, you know, what have you got against the 20% idea? It's not enough, I said, <laughs> which, which, I thought, which I thought was great. So we had a pretty unanimous take up there. But you don't get quite the same enthusiasm from policymakers and from head teachers, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, let's go into two groups now. Introduce yourselves to each other. And the question, please, for the next 10 minutes is the idea worthwhile? Is it a sensible proposition? Give us a bit of feedback from your group, Polly, and then I'll okay. say a bit about ours. Yeah, okay. Uh, we didn't get a chance to get around everybody, unfortunately, but the, we, we've had feedback um, from a few people. And um, there was a general agreement that, that it was a good idea. The, there was a couple of concerns um, from two different perspectives, really. So uh, we had concerns that um, educators uh, would need some training uh, before this um, took place, so before the 20% was in, um, introduced to schools, that um, educators would need some training as to why it was happening, and well, even head teachers would probably need some training in, as to what self-directed really means. And then the other thing was um, schools using it as a as a reward um, uh, rather than uh, understanding the, the, the philosophy behind the twenty percent. And then there was a mention as well of one of our group had worked with governors, and the governors were concerned with how fair it was um, and how it reflects on uh, on the school as a whole and whether it fitted in with like with the aims of the school generally this, was this on the understanding that the 20 percent would just be for some students and not for all um well actually that was kind of a concern the, the particular um person that was talking about the governors it was to do with she had uh, looked into flexi schooling and that was one of the things that they had 
said that that, that might not uh, that, that might not work for every family. So it's quite a, it's slightly different than the twenty percent proposal. But the main things to do with the twenty percent was um, education educators training and uh, the schools using it as a reward. We, we had a really interesting uh, mix of people in our group. Um, we got sort of assistant head, Dan, assistant head of a primary school. Um, and we had uh, somebody who's um, more or less involved in a school within a school in London, which sounded interesting. Um, and some, someone who'd been doing things in Morocco. And uh, then we got someone who, Dharma, who's actually stepping out of mainstream into a democratic school. Um, and I know that uh, Diana who and uh, the two people who have set up Collider were very worried that they wouldn't be able to find staff who would work be able to work in the atmosphere of a totally self-directed or at least switch the other way around instead of 20% self-directed in the Collider School, which is opening in Tenerife in September, it's going to be the other way around. It's going to be about 80% self-directed and about 20%, you could call it guided curriculum, covering, you know, some reading probably and maybe some maths um, because they've got to keep the English independent inspectorate happy, which yeah. is quite, which isn't quite as difficult as Ofsted, I must say. No. Would anyone like to develop the points they were beginning to develop? Would anyone like to chip in at this point? I think there's enough, not so many of us will be able to see if you just put a hand up. I think Kata um, wanted to speak. Did you have your hand up, Kata? No? <laughs> You're just playing with your ear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is Natasha still here? Rollins. I wasn't in one of the groups, but I have I have a I have um um I have a, I've always had a thought about this, which is th th there is a school in London I know that does um ten percent semi self directed, but one of my one one of my issues with it is that I feel that if children really had ten percent time to pursue their own interests, they'd want to play. And my concern is that would that is that is that possible within the proposal, or does it have to fit into a more rigid kind of ch children decide their own learning outcomes type structure? And or is or is that need for does that need for play as a le legitimate form of as, as as learning fits into the proposal i think it depends what age group you're talking about uh, in, in one respect um because uh if it's zero to eight then their the main focus would be uh around play anyway um, uh, but um also, I was I was explaining in the last group that once you give children uh, their own self-direction, then they choose things which uh, are they're interested in, and that, as a result, text boxes in the curriculum because they're interested in it. They're more likely to do uh, take part in subjects which they may not normally have enjoyed because they're interested in what they're learning about. So, as a as a consequence of that, they will end up doing um, things that, like maths that they might not have done earlier in the week because they, it goes alongside what they're interested in. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that um, has to be realised. 
staff when they're doing their training, that it, that, that it will still, in fact, it should increase, as in your experience, Terry, it, it increased the abilities of the pupils in the end, didn't it? And is play important in the primary school? Sorry? Uh, I, I guess it depends uh, which which primary school you speak to. Um, I, I've just come from uh, my previous school. Uh, we did quite a lot of self-directed, well, selfish directed learning. We had, um, t- we called it task time, where we'd have like six to eight activities and the children would choose which of them they would do and how they would accomplish that. So we'd have like an end goal in mind, but how they went about it was up to them. Um, so there was a lot of independence uh, around that. Uh, it took a lot of training of the teachers and then obviously of the children. Um, but we did that right through the school from reception to six, um, which worked really well. In my current setting, we're not there yet. We're, we're very much in subjects and boxes. Um, but I think there's room for wiggle room uh, to start introducing some of the, the uh, non-structured time. How big Certainly. was the school? Uh, how big was your previous school, Dan? And, and did all the kids right through the school from sort of reception to year six all work on task time at the same time? Um, we uh, we had a flexible timetable approach. So um, we would uh, look at where we were in our learning journey and then structure our timetable for that week to see what goals we had to accomplish um, so um, it would be up to each class teacher it wasn't it was only a one form entry school so we had it was much easier to implement change of that scale uh, on a school of that size and I've got from memory I think it was about 250 children uh, whereas I'm at school that's double that size now uh, so it'd be a much much longer gay um, project can I ask Dan who did, who did the training with you? Um, I'll know. It's something we decided we we wanted to do. Uh, we talked. Uh, we found. Uh, we read around slow learning. Um, I can't remember the school in London who who, who uh, were developing that. Um, around something very similar, um, and um, we were developing the curriculum at the time. So we did it in conjunction with a company that I also worked with called Primary Matters. But I don't know if that's. Um, someone widely known but they're uh like pioneering really the, the that task time approach as as part of the timetable okay this um i don't know if you can see it this is a californian project called 20 time and um it's widespread in california I only discovered it a couple of months ago. Um, and in elementary schools, it's quite like you said, Dan. In, sometimes there'll be a program of activities that the kids will have assisted in creating. I don't know if that's how it happened in your school, but the kids were involved in planning the activities and the range of activities expanded and expanded and expanded. And this, what, this is what's happening in the Israeli schools involved in the Sparks project, that as they realise just how much potential is out there in the community beyond the parents' And uh, beyond the staff's expertise, massive amount of potential in the community. When I was running a secondary school, we realised this when we became a community school. 
and developed activities. It started as activities day, then it became activities week that filled up the time when GCSEs and A-level were out of the way, a kind of dead time in secondary schools where nobody worried too much if nobody learned anything. And the effect, the amount of learning that went on in that time was quite phenomenal. And it turned around many kids who were anti-school um, changed their whole attitude to school and lots and lots of the groups in the community were involved in running things not just parents there were plenty of parents involved as well that, and that's always stuck in my mind and when I was an inspector I inspected one or two schools in rural areas where most of the kids had to go home on buses at the end of the day and the heads had thought about this and talked to their governors about it and said we've got to bring extra curriculum into curriculum time so they created half a day a week for an electives program it was incredibly successful and i think i put in the uh, the 20 percent project proposal that some parents said to me i was a bit some of the inspectors weren't too keen on it and uh, they did things like let kids choose their own math stream for maths, which I thought was brilliant and the maths inspector thought was crazy. But I talked to a lot of parents about what was going on in the school and they said, we're so excited about this activities week. It's about this electives time. It's worth giving up a bit of curriculum time because their attitudes to school change. She said, my kids... You, you, they get off their deathbeds to go into school um, when it's electives day. It was a Wednesday afternoon and they were planning. They were thinking about, dare we do this for a whole day or would Ofsted cause us problems? And this is the ridiculous thing about Ofsted. It's just your luck who you get as an inspector because I was saying to the head teacher, do it, you know, give it a go. Call it something else if you like, but give it a try. And this yeah. was already a school that was involving the kids in an awful lot of decision making. Uh, before we go to our next breakout, would anyone else like to chip in on the on the first discussion that you've had? Jose. Hi, I just wondered if you've got any examples of kind of inner city secondary schools. Schools, because I I love this I love uh, this approach this policy um, idea I would love to see it in my school but I do have my worries about how insidious the curriculum is and how demotivating it is and how if the twenty percent were there you know lots of my students I worry um, they wouldn't know what to do with it because of all the other uh, uh, sort of quite oppressive um, parts of going to school uh, I just wondered what you thought about that. School 21 is in London and the head there has been writing articles in The Guardian slating the irrelevance of the subject curriculum and trying to create a completely different kind of curriculum and that's a state comprehensive school. There's the XR school in Doncaster as well and probably Roam will know some others. There are schools that we could send you the details of that are beginning to move in this direction. Also, there's the East Kent Sudbury School, which teachers could go and visit if they wanted to see how democratic learning works. Um, yeah. and, uh, but I get, I get your point, Jose, is that as, as well, if a child has been in a coercive system for many years, you give them a time to choose their own time, especially if they've got lots of structured activities after school. They don't know what to do with it initially. We need to kind of need some ideas and some guidance. 
There are about 500 democratic schools around the world, which I would say were 80% to 100% self-directed learning. And of course, the Sudbury Valley model is built around 100%. There's no curriculum unless the kids create it. There are no lessons unless the kids ask for it. Um, there are a lot of Sudbury schools, about 50 around the world. And as Polly says, the East Kent Sudbury School has been open now for just over a year. It's the first one in this country, but it's expanding, I'm glad to say, and they've got a new building, which is very exciting. But this 20% idea can look for inspiration to the 100% democratic schools, but the battles are still to be fought within the mainstream, aren't they, to even get the 20%. And, that and, that comes, and the next question for the breakout groups is, how, if we were going to implement the 20%, how... Are we going to do that? Exactly. And we, it's, it's a focus for the campaign for progressive education, but we also would like anybody else in this group to consider joining us. And um, um, for this next discussion, really think about exactly how that could be done. Could it be done through Ofsted? Could it be done through the Department of Education? Um, is it going to be... Uh, bottom-up approach or a top-down approach or a combination of them both. So have a think about that and we'll go into our second um, breakout group. Thanks, Rory. Hey, let's do that now. Yeah. Uh, just while you've got a bit of time, is it, uh, do you mind if I ask a question? Um, I just, um, I don't know what anyone's thought on this is, but like um, the biggest, uh, well, the best way to uh, justify something is when you've got statistics or data to back it up and even if I could run a pilot in my school I'm wondering how I could prove impact or the best way of proving impact because the flexibility in the, of the approach is makes it quite slippery to try and to try and uh, show, show show impact do you know what, do you understand what I mean absolutely where's the beef where's the evidence I think we've got, we've got quite a bit of evidence that involving students more participatively in the way schools are run, and that's in both curriculum and sort of the social side, management side of school. There is some evidence that schools that take this seriously and involve all or large numbers of kids in these kinds of activities, they do get better results in three ways. They get better examination results than you would expect, um, and they get better attendance figures, and they have fewer exclusions. Um, I did a report for Blunkett um, to look at exactly that. When we were planning to introduce... Um, democratic decision-making and responsible action into the citizenship curriculum uh, for Key Stage 4, he agreed to do it on the understanding that kids only learn about democracy by taking responsibility and taking part. He accepted that. But then he got attacked by Woodhead and Melanie Phillips and the Daily Mail or a number of articles having a go at him for wasting time on democracy when kids should be having extra maths lessons. And uh, I got given the job of seeing if I could find some schools that were more democratic than most, regular schools, but more democratic than most. And I found them in inner cities, rural areas and suburban schools. And taking free school meal bans as the yardstick 
when we looked at the more democratic schools' results with the average for all other schools in similar free school meal bans, the more democratic schools were getting better results, both in GCSE, attendance, um, and uh, exclusion. And Blunkett, of course, had just been Home Secretary. He was very, very keen for some good news on exclusion because when kids are excluded, they tend to get into trouble. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, we came up with two ideas, I think, that we needed to find receptive senior leadership. Um, and I talked about the idea I'm talking about in Canada right now, finding responsible subversives, people who managed to get people like Dan and me, who got into positions of some responsibility, uh, still retaining some radical ideas, in fact, developing them rather than just retaining them. So it is possible, and those people are out there, and we have to go and find them. Um, and then once we've found them, we have to provide them with some evidence and some ideas on staff training, which seems to have come through for me from this session. Staff training is a, a crucial thing to be thinking about. You can't just switch a switch and hope that it will work. Absolutely. Was that your main um, conclusions, uh, Derry, from, from that? That was mainly to do with the training and receptive senior leadership. Was that the two thing, main things? Well, the others in the group are here. What do you think? A few noddings? Yeah, nodding. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yes, and that's something that um, I explained to my group. I've actually been working on a PowerPoint for state uh, schools, uh, for, for uh, teachers, uh, to deliver in uh, whole school training. So that's definitely something close to my heart as well. Um, the other points that came from our group, um, was um, a discussion about whether this campaign to introduce the 20% in state education um, is delivered from the top down or the bottom up. And I think the general consensus was a kind of a, a two-pronged approach where parents were very much um, uh, on board with the idea and approaching governors and pushing for it, as well as lobbying MPs uh, so both uh, would, would, would be the ideal sort of way forward. Um, and then one of the barriers that came up was how schools um, felt that it would interrupt with the exam system or with the uh, curricular demands or the demands from Oxford. So I think the, if, if I was to do a whole school training on this, that's one of the things that would come up a lot. Um, in schools and the fact that that you know that they believe that, that it will interrupt that this that a, a full 20% of the week would be way too much to allow so that's kind of where we're at um, what I would like to take from this session if anybody would like to join our campaign and, and progress this forward if you would like to um, in the chat put your email address we can send information. Also, there's a campaign for progressive education group that you can join on Facebook. And there's Joe's website, <laughs> the progressive education website as well. So uh, where we all kind of gather together, anybody who has uh, any ideas. So um, if you would like to join the campaign, please leave. Has anybody got any other things to say? I'd just like to, I put into the chat um, a report that's just been produced by the Economist Intelligence Unit, 
Um, for those in the other group, I've, I think this is a really important report. It's a report that recommends what's going to be required for teacher training, the teachers coming into the school system um, at, in 2030. And extraordinarily, they actually argue directly for the need for, for, I had no idea this was the case, I've only just discovered it, that they've argued for 20% of curriculum time to be given over to explorations uh, initiated and conducted by the kids, which is the staff acting as facilitators and the kids taking the initiative. I nearly fell off my chair when I saw it because, as I said in the other group, I don't think of the Economist Intelligence Unit reports being my favourite bedtime reading. But this one is actually very radical in its understanding. And if you look at the World Economic Forum, the capitalist millionaires, billionaires at Davos, they are also, the WEF is also arguing for much more pupil participation in the construction of their own curriculum as being absolutely vital for developing the skills needed for the future. So we've got friends in strange places. And in terms of needing evidence, Dan, looking at some of these rather formal um, reports from economic organisations, it's not a bad idea to draw on them. Absolutely. And I think these are the kind of reports that can be um, shown to MPs as, as, as part of a uh, a, a lot of evidence gathered together um, to give to them because there is a lot of evidence out there that this would make a difference. And thank you very much, everybody, for coming, by the way. Thank you, Derry. And thank you, as well as Polly, thank you so much for coming. It's been really interesting. And the word training is uh, firmly in my mind. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.